I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. Today, raising kids who aren't assholes, the wisdom of Mr. Rogers, and the merits of running your family like a business. In the last 18 months, many of us have had the good fortune of spending more time with our kids than ever before. And the misfortune of spending more time with our kids than ever before. We have three boys, and they are, without question, the most delightful, miraculous, endearing internet bandwidth hogs I have ever had the pleasure of knowing. Luckily for both our household's Wi-Fi network and our kids' social and intellectual development, our boys are headed back to school next week. And as sorry as I am to see them go, I'm also eager for them and our family to resume something resembling the normal rhythm of life. School, work, dinnertime chit-chat, capped off with bedtime hostage negotiations. But I must admit that after a year of homeschooling and uncertainty, a year that has felt like Swiss family Griscom, I feel as if I've forgotten how to be a normal, unfrazzled, nothing to see here, everything is under control parent. Given that objective, I powered up the Next Big Idea app and scrolled through our book bites. For those of you who aren't app users, here's a bit of background. Every season, we ask the authors of the most groundbreaking new books to distill those books down to five big ideas and then read them aloud. We call the book bites the best new books in 12 minutes of audio, and our app has hundreds of them, a new one every weekday. I thought I would share with you today three new book bites that really caused me to stop and rethink how I interact with my kids and how I can do it better. The first is about how to raise kids who aren't assholes. Wouldn't that be nice? The second is about the enduring wisdom of Mr. Rogers, now scientifically verified. The third is about the merits of running your family like a business. I found some real wisdom in the insights that follow. Three brilliant books in one podcast. I hope you enjoy them as much as I did. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Melinda Wenner Moyer. I'm a science and parenting journalist, a contributing editor at Scientific American Magazine, and the author of the book How to Raise Kids Who Aren't Assholes. I'm going to share five key insights from my book about raising kind, compassionate, and resilient children. Big idea number one talking about feelings makes kids more generous. Let's say a child wants to do something nice for a friend who's having a hard time. First, he has to be able to perceive his friend's feelings and needs. He has to be able to read his friend's face and body language and translate that into an understanding of what his friend is going through and what he might want, without letting his own feelings and desires get in the way. To develop these skills, kids need to become fluent in the language of emotions. One surefire way to make this happen is to talk to kids about feelings early and often. Research shows that parents who talk about feelings are more likely to have generous kids. In a 2013 study, researchers invited toddlers and their mothers into a lab 
and asked the moms to read a book to their kids. As they read, the researchers recorded how frequently the moms labeled and explained the characters' feelings and encouraged their kids to do the same. They assumed that moms who talked about feelings in the study talked about feelings a lot at home, too. Then the toddlers were invited one by one to play with a researcher in another room. While they played, the children were given opportunities to be generous, to share toys, and to help the researcher when they pretended to need something. The researcher complained, for instance, that she felt cold when a blanket was just out of reach to see if the child would go get the blanket and give it to her. The researchers found that the children of moms who frequently engaged with their kids about feelings were much more likely to help and share. In other words, talking about feelings helps kids develop the skills they need to be compassionate and generous. Big idea number two, to build resiliency, let kids fail. One of our most important jobs as parents is to protect our kids and keep them safe. But when this instinct is too well honed, it can be counterproductive. When we start protecting our kids, not just from serious harm, but also from challenge and failure, we hold them back and can even make them feel worse about themselves. A resilient child is a child who feels capable, who feels adept at handling different kinds of situations, but who also knows that if she messes up, she'll still be loved and accepted. Studies suggest that kids can struggle with feelings of low self-efficacy when their parents do too much for them. Researchers at the University of Illinois surveyed more than 200 students from second through fifth grade, asking them how they felt when their parents helped them and made decisions for them. The older the kids were, the more they considered their parents' help to be a sign that their parents considered them incompetent. When we instead give kids the opportunity to navigate challenges themselves, we show them that we have faith in them. We also communicate that it's okay to mess up because every mistake is an opportunity for learning and growth. Another way to build resilience in kids is to emphasize effort more than skill or ability. This invokes what Stanford psychologist Carol Dweck calls a growth mindset. When we tell kids they're smart or they're naturally good at math, they start to think of ability as a fixed trait. They either have it or they don't, and effort doesn't matter. When they start thinking this way, they then start to consider challenges and failures as signs of ineptitude. If instead we emphasize to kids that smarts and ability are learned through effort and practice, they start to see challenges as opportunities for growth and learning. Dweck's research has illustrated the power of the growth mindset. In one study, kids were given IQ tests and told they'd done well. The researchers then told some of the kids that they must be smart. To others, they said, you must have worked hard. Next, the researchers asked the students what kinds of problems they wanted to do next, problems that were easy so they would likely do well on them, or problems that they would learn a lot from but might not make them look smart. The kids who had been praised for being smart, they found, were much more likely to request the easy problems, and the kids praised for their effort were more likely to choose the challenging ones. In other words, a growth mindset helps kids see challenges and failure as opportunities rather than setbacks. Big idea number three, respond to misbehavior with empathy, then guidance. Often when kids act out, parents assume they're doing it on purpose. They're defying us. They're trying to make us mad. But in reality, kids often misbehave because they're lacking the skills they need to handle the situation rationally and gracefully. And when we get mad at kids for acting out, we upset them more, which makes it harder for them to listen to and learn from us. Research suggests that the best way to respond to misbehavior is to first validate your child's feelings. If your daughter has thrown a book across the room in rage, you might say, oh wow, you look so angry, before moving on to the issue of the thrown book. Give her the opportunity 
to talk about her feelings by asking her what happened, and then reflect those feelings back to her. Oh, I totally get it. You're mad because you weren't invited to Leah's birthday party. Acknowledging your child's feelings will help her understand them and learn to manage them better. Research has shown that when parents shame kids for having big feelings, those kids are more likely to have problems regulating their emotions in the future. Then, once your child has calmed down a bit, think about the guidance you want to impart, what lesson you want to teach in that moment. Perhaps you want to convey to your kid that although it's okay that she's mad, it's not okay for her to throw things because then someone could get hurt. You might also talk about what she could do next time she's angry that would be more appropriate. When we respond to bad behavior with empathy and guidance, we help our kids learn from the experience and manage the next difficult situation more appropriately and constructively. Big idea number four. To prevent racism, talk to children about race. White parents sometimes say things like, my kids don't see color, or my kids are colorblind. But research shows that children notice differences in skin color from the time they're babies. And kids are like little detectives. They're constantly looking around, trying to understand how the world works and which social categories matter and why. They'll notice that hair color doesn't matter when it comes to how much power people have and where people live and who people are friends with, but that race does matter. They'll see that all but one U.S. president has been white, that the students at school with the nicest homes are white, that heroes portrayed in most movies are white. And then they start to make inferences. If parents and teachers don't talk to children about the role that racism plays in shaping the racial hierarchy that exists in our society, kids may conclude that white people have more power and prestige because they're somehow smarter or better. Research confirms that talking about race and racism reduces the likelihood that white kids will develop racial prejudice. Just as an aside, families of color usually talk about race a lot, in part because they have to. It's really only white families who go out of their way to avoid the topic. In one study, researchers presented short biographies of famous white and black people to white elementary-aged children over the course of six days. Half of the kids heard biographies that discussed the discrimination experienced by the black individuals, while the other half heard biographies without any details about discrimination. Afterwards, the researchers gave the kids tests designed to assess their levels of racial prejudice. Compared with the kids who weren't taught about discrimination, the kids who were had more positive attitudes towards black people. One thing I want to acknowledge is that it can feel really awkward to talk about race if you're white. That's in part because many white people have been raised to consider race a taboo subject. So it may be hard at first, but it gets easier the more you do it. And it's okay if you make mistakes or you don't know how to answer all of your kids' questions. You can always revisit them later when you've had some time to think. Still, it's far better to talk about race with your kids and make mistakes than to avoid the topic entirely. Big idea number five. When kids fight, be a mediator, not a referee. When kids get into arguments, our tendency is to either let them work out the conflict for themselves or to jump in and referee, to say, okay, Jimmy, give the teddy bear to your sister. But research suggests that these strategies backfire. When we leave kids to work out conflict on their own, they rarely work it out cooperatively. The older or more dominant child typically wins, which can teach kids that coercion and bullying are good ways to solve problems. And when we referee, the losing child feels resentment towards the winning one, and towards you, which fuels further conflict. But there's another way, a way to use conflict to teach kids about empathy and cooperation. It's called mediation. First, intervene in the fight. 
acknowledge that the kids sound upset, and put anything they're fighting over away for a few minutes. Next, ask each child to describe what happened and how they feel, and identify points of contention and common ground. Then, help the kids brainstorm solutions to the problem that feel fair to everyone. Mediation works because it acknowledges and validates kids' emotions, and it helps kids understand the other child's perspective. This not only makes each child feel heard and respected, but it teaches each child to understand and respect other people's feelings, too. Research from clinical trials has shown that mediation works. One 2014 study found that after parents were taught to use mediation techniques with their kids, their children were better able to discuss their and their siblings' feelings, to identify potential solutions, and to arrive at compromises on their own. That was Melinda Wenner-Moyer with five big ideas from her new book, How to Raise Kids Who Aren't Assholes. A few weeks ago, we held a virtual book launch for her. She spoke with Christina Hillsberg, the author of another wonderful new book about parenting called License to Parent. And at the end of the night, Christina asked Melinda to sum up her entire book in a few sentences. This stuck with me. My advice would be to step out of your comfort zone and talk to your kids about the things that you would otherwise maybe avoid talking about because they're hard or they're uncomfortable. Because those hard topics, those uncomfortable, those really difficult topics, they're often the most complex and nuanced topics. And they're often very, very important. So we want our kids to learn about them from us rather than like from their friends or from the media, which will almost certainly give them a you know less nuanced and perhaps less constructive idea. So I think if we should... Yeah, step out of our comfort zone, because if we avoid the topics with our kids, it's not that we're keeping those topics out of their lives. We're just ensuring that the information they get doesn't come from us. Coming up after the break, a journalist and a children's advocate break down the powerful science behind the iconic TV show, Mr. Rogers Neighborhood. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. On September 21st, 1967, the cameras rolled in the studios of WQED in Pittsburgh and into the frame strode a scrawny graduate of the local theological seminary. He had dark hair, neatly parted, and a smile that, in its unabashed toothiness, signaled warmth and wholesomeness. That man was Fred Rogers, better known as Mr. Rogers. And for the next three decades, he would, in his steady neighborly way, beam into living rooms across the country to teach young viewers about life and death, happiness and sadness, and to remind us all that no matter what, we are special just the way we are. Mr. Rogers' neighborhood wasn't just suffused with homespun wisdom, It was built on real science, and that science is the subject of a new book by Greg Baer and Ryan Radzetsky called When You Wonder You're Learning, Mr. Rogers' Enduring Lessons for Raising Creative, Curious, Caring Kids. Greg is a children's advocate. Ryan is a teacher turned journalist. It makes sense that they'd want to write a book about education, but it turns out they have a personal connection to Mr. Rogers, too. 
We called up Ryan on what happened to be the 20th anniversary of the day the final episode of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood aired and asked him about it. One thing you should know about Greg and I is that we both grew up in Western Pennsylvania, the real life home of Fred Rogers. So if you're familiar with the opening sequence of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, you probably remember those little model houses. You know, those look just like the houses that Greg and I grew up in. If you remember the program, you probably remember that Mr. Rogers took us to libraries and museums and community gardens and factories. And those were our libraries and museums and gardens and factories, you know, the places that we and our families went in real life. So we came to this work with a deep emotional connection to Rogers that, you know, millions of other kids have as well. Ryan says their aha moment came when they realized that the scientists who were studying childhood development all seemed to be borrowing phrases from Mr. Rogers. So when we realized that scientists, when they talk about learning, often sound less like scientists and more like script writers in Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, that's when we really began to see Fred Rogers himself as a learning scientist, someone who uh, in many ways was decades ahead of his time. And that's when we knew we had a, a book idea on our hands. Here are Ryan and Greg with five big ideas from that book. This is Ryan Radzeski, and I'm a science and education reporter. And I'm Greg Baer, executive director of the Grable Foundation and founder of Remake Learning. Together, we're the authors of When You Wonder, You're Learning, Mr. Rogers' Enduring Lessons for Raising Creative, Curious, Caring Kids. The book uncovers the science behind Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, exploring how kids, and their parents too, can excel at what Rogers taught best, being human. We're going to share with you five big ideas from our book. Big idea number one, when it comes to children's learning, the presence of caring adults outweighs almost everything else. If there was one idea at the core of Mr. Rogers' neighborhood, this was it. In 1969, when Fred Rogers was trying to save the Corporation for Public Broadcasting from being defunded, he testified to the Senate that above all, he felt that his job on television was to give an expression of care every day to each child. This is what I give. I give an expression of care every day to each child to help him realize that he is unique. I end the program by saying, you've made this day a special day by just your being you. There's no person in the whole world like you, and I like you just the way you are. And I feel that if we in public television can only make it clear that feelings are mentionable and manageable, we will have done a great service for mental health. And on one hand, that sounds obvious, right? Of course kids need caring adults around them. But what's interesting about Mr. Rogers, and this is really the crux of our book, is that decades after the neighborhood debuted, science is just now starting to catch up with it. We're starting to learn in a very real, quantifiable way just how right Rogers was and just how effective his philosophies and his methods really are. Let's take just one out of countless examples of this. In the 1980s, researchers at the University of Washington launched a long-term study of about 800 kids, which they divided into groups. The researchers gave the parents and teachers of one group a series of lessons and tools designed to help adults build stronger relationships with kids. The parents and teachers of the rest were the control group, meaning they didn't receive any extra help at all. 30 years later, in 2019, the researchers compared the two groups. And just as Mr. Rogers might have predicted, 
the kids whose parents and teachers have been taught to build stronger relationships outperformed their peers on everything. They were happier. They made more money. They were more healthy physically. They were more likely to be involved in their communities. And this held true across race, gender, and class. The researchers summed up their findings with a surprisingly simple statement. The most important thing we learned, they wrote, was just the value of being present. Make sure your kids have the opportunity to engage with you as a parent. Play with them. Hold them. Don't just sit on your phone when you're with them, and you're likely to be setting them up to have better lives long into the future. Big idea number two. Great learning requires a sense of safety that's both physical and psychological. It's a fact of human biology that we just don't think very well when we feel like we're in danger. When we're faced with a threat, whether it's one of physical harm or rejection from a group of our peers, our stress response systems take over. And the resources that normally power our cognition, you know, things like curiosity, complex thinking, and even compassion, are routed instead to our bodies, getting us ready to fight or to flee or to freeze. So if we want our children to learn, it's up to adults to help minimize the threats that trigger those stress responses. Now that doesn't mean lying to kids or avoiding conflict or ignoring the distressing realities of the world. Kids have to learn to handle that stuff, and with your help, they absolutely can. But it does mean that it's our job to help kids feel safe. If you were to watch the first episode of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, which aired in 1968, and then watch the last episode, which aired in 2001, you really wouldn't notice a lot of differences. Yes, one is black and white, and the other is color, and yes, Rogers himself has aged 30-some years. But the set is largely the same, the songs are largely the same, and the structure is largely the same. It's a beautiful day in this neighborhood, a beautiful day for a neighbor. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? Almost every episode starts with Rogers talking to us in his living room. Then we go off to the neighborhood of make-believe for a while. Now we've been pretending that X the owl is giving flying lessons to anyone who wants them. But last time, Lady Elaine said she was going to teach people to fly high because she had a hat with a propeller on it. So let's think more about that as the trolley goes into the neighborhood of make-believe. And then we come back to Mr. Rogers to talk about what we've seen. Consider the changes that took place outside of that TV studio over the course of three decades. It's remarkable how consistent Rogers kept things for the camera. And that was deliberate. He knew that consistent routines and structures help kids feel safe. He knew that by maintaining this trustworthy TV world, he was helping kids feel relaxed enough to be able to learn. Even his trademark hellos, the changing of his shoes, the zipping of his sweaters, conveyed a sense of welcoming and warmth. And so to the extent that he could, Rogers created a world that didn't ignore outside threats, but that made kids feel safe from them, if only for 28 minutes. And then, of course, there were his songs, all of which he wrote to help kids feel that they are enough, that they are worthy of acceptance right now, exactly as they are, regardless of what they know or don't know, regardless of what they look like, regardless of their individual strengths and faults. It's such a good feeling 
to know you're alive it's such a happy feeling you're growing inside and when you wake up ready to say i think i'll make a snappy new day it's such a good feeling a very good feeling the feeling you know that i'll be back when the day is new and i'll have more ideas for you and you'll have things you'll want to talk about i will too and there's so much science now showing that this feeling of psychological safety is absolutely essential to learning and to how kids and adults too function in relation to one another we talk about this in the book but google did a study of its own teams a few years ago the company's statisticians found that teams that lacked psychological safety, where people were made to feel inadequate or unworthy, missed their sales goals by an average of 19%, and the teams that felt psychological safety exceeded their goals by almost the same amount, because members were so readily able to learn, both as individuals and as a unit. Big idea number three, environment shapes behavior. This is another truth of learning that Rogers seemed to get on a fundamental level, in which he deployed in some really ingenious ways. If you think about learning spaces today, in lots of them you'll find some amazing technology. You'll hopefully find at least one caring adult, and you'll probably see the things that we typically associate with learning, things like books, desks, a chalkboard or a smartboard, and so on. But in the United States, we haven't always given a lot of thought to or placed a lot of value on physical spaces. Things like what the lighting does, how the furniture feels, which materials things are made of. Now, there are a lot of reasons for that, not least of which is the amount of resources we allocate for these things. But Mr. Rogers knew that this stuff matters, and the learning sciences are once again proving him right. One of the tools for learning that we discuss in the book is creativity. And we know so much more now about how our physical surroundings can support or detract from our creative output. There was a study done in 2002, for example, where researchers gauged the creativity of high school students in different settings, including the sort of sterile, plastic and drywall rooms that we typically associate with traditional classrooms. And what they found was that students were far more creative in spaces with lots of materials like wood and sunlight, places where things look natural and well-crafted, places that look, in other words, a lot like Mr. Rogers' living room. Today, places that prioritize physical environments like Rogers did are seeing some really amazing results. One of the examples we profile in the book is the Manchester Craftsman's Guild, which is a community arts center based here in Pittsburgh that operates campuses around the world. Here, they serve kids from some of Pittsburgh's lowest income neighborhoods, recruiting world-class educators to teach photography, ceramics, digital arts, and more. All of this happens in this incredible building. The Guild's founder, Bill Strickland, is an artist himself, and he hired a student of Frank Lloyd Wright to design the center. There's glass and wood and sunlight everywhere. There's art on every wall. There are orchids. When we visited, Bill said something we'll never forget. He said, everywhere you look here, there's something beautiful looking back. That is deliberate. Environments like this one erase fear. They cure cancer of the human spirit, and the kids inside them blossom. And Bill Strickland's right. 98% of the Guild kids graduate from high school on time. 85% go on to some kind of secondary education. They've never had an incident of violence, and they've never called the police. 
There's never been a need. Environment shapes behavior. Big idea number four. The things adults value and the things kids think we value don't always match up. If there's one thing that set Fred Rogers apart from your average caring adult, it was the intentionality and the thoughtfulness with which he communicated with kids. Talking to young people is something that feels intuitive to a lot of adults. But as one psychologist once wrote, conversing with kids is a unique art, one with rules and meanings of its own. Rogers understood this in ways that can be really helpful to parents and teachers today. We'll give you an example of one of the gulfs between what adults say and what kids actually hear. When adults are asked about their highest hopes for their children, the vast majority of parents and teachers agree. The most important thing they say is that kids grow up to be caring adults who prioritize family, generosity, and community. Nearly every adult says that. On surveys, at least, our values are clear. We think that caring about others is way more important than what grades kids get or what awards they win. What kids hear, though, is a completely different story. According to Harvard's Graduate School of Education, about 80% of young people say the opposite that their parents and teachers are more concerned about grades and achievement than anything else. Even adults' unconscious cues can filter down to kids. Parents are more likely to Google whether their sons are geniuses than their daughters. And teachers are more likely to perceive boys as having innate talent, even though girls tend to do better in school. One of the remarkable things about Mr. Rogers' neighborhood is that no one walked away from it wondering how Fred Rogers saw them. In every episode, his message to kids was clear. I see your potential and your worth exactly as you are. You are loved and capable of loving. And if you can come to see that in yourself and in the people around you, then you'll have what you need to succeed, regardless of what success might look like for you. So what can we learn from the man in the cardigan sweater? It all comes down to how we listen and how we talk. Effective communication with kids, or really with anyone, does one particular thing. It acknowledges and respects the other person's feelings, even if we don't agree with those feelings. Now that's easier said than done. Kids, like all human beings, can be downright baffling. But when we make space to listen to kids without judging them, and without projecting our assumptions, our experiences, or even our well-intentioned words of wisdom, we start to do what Rogers did which is see children as people whose feelings and hopes and fears are every bit as deep and real as our own. And when we talk to people from this place of understanding, they become more receptive to hearing us and vice versa. We can have real conversations that bring us closer together and close those unintended gulfs. The Buddhist monk Thich Nhat Hanh calls this deep listening and loving speech, which is a phrase that's also a just about perfect description of the neighborhood. Big idea number five, unstructured time is not necessarily wasted time. When you go back and watch Mr. Rogers as an adult, one of the first things you'll notice is the sheer amount of silence he deploys. There's a stillness to the neighborhood that you generally don't find in other television programs. In fact, while TV and movies today include a cut every two to three seconds on average, Rogers allowed no more than two cuts per minute in the neighborhood. And so the program moves much more slowly. There's a lot of unfilled space. Like everything else Rogers did, this was by design. His program embraced a fact that we've really come to ignore in this always-on, hyper-connected world we've built, which is this. 
For all our emphasis on speed and instantaneous access, our best ideas and our purest inspiration come in moments of quiet, in moments of solitude. We do our best thinking and learning not when we're barraged by fast-moving media or by the internet's buzzing hive mind, but when we're disconnected, when we're unplugged and alone. And even, or perhaps especially, when we're bored. In recent years, there's been an explosion of interest in this idea among scientists, writers, and even workplace experts who are trying to help people focus during a time of constant distraction. But when it comes to kids and learning, there's a sort of cultural pressure to fill every moment with something productive. And so it's no wonder that unstructured free time is disappearing from families' schedules. The perceived risks of sitting still are huge. And even when we do relax, we have this unlimited menu of things to watch and posts to read and songs to listen to, thanks to these devices in our pockets. Try to remember the last time you just sat still. No screens, no media, no cognitive input from somebody else's brain. For most of us, it's probably been a while. The irony is that this relentless focus on productivity is in many ways counterproductive. Rogers knew this, and that's why you see scenes in the neighborhood like an egg timer counting down a full minute, or like Rogers turning a houseplant ever so slightly, again and again, so that kids can see it from every possible angle. There's even an episode that finds Rogers literally watching paint dry. The point of all this was twofold. The first was to give kids space to think and to process. And the second was just to trust them. Rogers knew that when we let them, kids can and will fill periods of downtime with their own curiosity and their own creativity. Rogers knew that kids need that downtime in order to feel wonder and to develop interests that are authentic to them rather than imposed on them by adults. And the benefits are enormous. When we trust kids to use their imaginations, to wonder about the questions that interest them, and to come up with their own ways to play, we're giving them space to become creative, industrious, self-motivated individuals. We're giving them space to figure out who they are, to figure out what delights them, what bothers them, what moves them. Now, this doesn't mean that we, the adults, don't get involved. Just the opposite. Psychologists have found that it helps when adults encourage and even join in children's play, and when they provide simple objects like building blocks that, to a kid, can become anything. This is so important that in 2018, the American Academy of Pediatrics released a prescription for the nation's parents. Go play with your kids, they said, every single day. We've known it for a long time, but those pediatricians made it official. The lessons we learned in Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood are just what the doctor ordered. Greg and Ryan are the authors of the new book, When You Wonder You're Learning, Mr. Rogers' Enduring Lessons for Raising Creative, Curious, Caring Kids. When we spoke to Ryan, we asked him if he ever got to meet his hero. He passed away when I was still in high school. And at that age, I was still too cool for Mr. Rogers. I was in that brief phase of my life where I didn't think he was amazing. But we have the great honor, the great privilege of having a forward in the book from Joanne Rogers, uh, Fred's wife, who was a champion for us. She was a champion for the project. And in addition to being a, an amazing steward of Fred's legacy, she was a champion for kids in her own right. Joanne passed away just a few months after she wrote that forward. But Ryan says her legacy lives on. And of course, Fred is still with us um, in his sweaters and in his legacy and in the many spin-offs of his work, such as Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood. Um, Joanne and Fred 
I think will always be part of our lives. And for that, we're, we're very grateful. Let's take a short break. When we come back, acclaimed economist Emily Oster says one data point can change your entire approach to parenting. Hi, I'm Tober Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so, we had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. What if the secret to good parenting is better data? That's been the longstanding theory of economist Emily Oster. Emily writes a newsletter called Parent Data, and she's the author of two previous books, one on pregnancy and another on early childhood. They both use economic theory to make parenting less stressful. In her New York Times bestselling new book, The Family Firm, A Data-Driven Guide to Better Decision-Making in the Early School Years, she applies her approach to elementary-age kids. Hi, my name is Emily Oster. I'm a professor of economics at Brown University and the author of three books, Expecting Better, Crib Sheet, and my new book, The Family Firm, which I'm going to tell you about today. Big idea one, better business practices can help families. Well-run firms have a plan and they make decisions deliberately with an eye towards the mission of their firm. When you think about your family, your family probably has a mission too, even if it's an unstated one. But I'm guessing you're not always looking to it when you're making decisions, even big decisions. And you probably do not embrace the same kinds of business processes that you do at work. I think that we often shy away from thinking about our family like a firm because it seems unemotional and cold and maybe a little weird. But a key argument in my book is that if we can get past that, then we can make the logistics part of our lives run better and we can leave time for the fun. Let me give you an example. In my household, we spend a lot of time interacting about logistics using email. So sometimes we'll have a conversation and then afterwards my husband will send me, and I'm not making this up, an email with bullet points saying, here are the things we agreed on, here are the next steps, whatever it is. And the thing about this is that even though it seems a little clinical, maybe a little bit unusual in, in the moment, it means that actually we're not talking about those things at times that we like to be, say, having a conversation about economics or talking about what would be a fun thing to do on our next vacation. We leave that time for the fun. And in fact, there's, there's more time for those other conversations because we are using this more efficient, better business process to get through the logistical hurdles. And those logistical hurdles are always going to come when you're parenting kids who have a lot of different things to do on top of parents who are also trying to do things and occasionally sleep. 
in some sense, I would say the message here is basically that I can love you a lot and I can still want you to update the household Asana tasks. Big idea two, create a big picture. The idea here is that when you're thinking about planning out your family life, you should sit down actually with a calendar and think a little bit about what you want your day to look like. We can think about one example of a household where everyone gets up, they go off to school, maybe mom picks the kids up at the end of the day, they head to soccer practice, they grab dinner in the car, they get home, they go to bed around 10 or 10.30. You could think about another way your day might go, where we get up, we go off to school, but at the end of the day, the kids come home, they hang out, they do their homework, maybe we sit down together as a family for dinner, Maybe we don't do much in the way of extracurriculars and everyone's in bed a little bit earlier. There's nothing inherently good or bad about either of those family setups. But the thing is that if you thought you wanted to be in the first one, if you thought that what you wanted was a busy life with lots of extracurriculars and hockey and soccer and things like that, and you all of a sudden find yourself having to make dinner and sit down for dinner every night at six o'clock, you might not be happy. And vice versa, if you thought you'd be sitting for dinner every night at six and you find that instead you're eating in the car, running around to sports practices, you may also not be happy. So before you commit to any of these things or or don't commit to them, sit down and think about what do you want your day to look like? And a big value to this is that it can make later decisions easier. If you have decided, as I will confess my family has, that sitting down for dinner every night as a family is a really important part of your day, then there are lots of things that you're not going to be able to do. My kids don't participate in a lot of different extracurriculars because many of them would interfere with this central piece that we have decided is really, really important. So consider sitting down and creating this kind of big picture, this overall image of what your life would look like ideally, or at least in a realistic ideal under the constraints that you face like having to go to your job. This is gonna help you make decisions later on. Big idea three, use the four Fs. So now I wanna step into thinking about what happens when a big decision arises, something that we hadn't expected or maybe we expected it, we knew it was coming, but it's important. Something like what school should my kid go to? It's a decision that you're not gonna have to make every day. You're probably not going to really have to make even every year, but it's something that we really care about and we want to make the decision correctly. The thing that is really hard about big decisions like this is it's very hard to know if you have made them correctly. Little decisions like what should I have for dinner? What kind of clothes should I buy my kids? Small decisions like that. It's both that they're not important and that it's easier to feel confident in what we do. But when we think about a decision like what school should my kid go to, it's hard to end that decision and feel like I'm exactly 100% confident that I made the right choice. And because we can't ever be sure we're right about that, it can be very, very challenging to move forward on the decision. Many of us, include myself in this, find that these decisions take up a huge amount of our mental space without having a lot of forward movement. We're thinking about them in the shower. We're waking our spouse up at three o'clock in the morning to tell them something else that we think should be important to our consideration set. 
And yet we're never really getting to the end and never really making the decision. So what I advocate in the book is that instead, it's a good idea to use a very formal structured process. And I have a particular one in mind. It's called the four F's. The first F is frame the question. So actually think about what you are really choosing between. If I'm making a choice about schools, I'm not choosing between an infinite set of schools. I'm probably choosing between one, two, maybe three options. It may in fact be the case that there really isn't any choice, and I'm just obsessing about this decision, even though there's no decision to make. So the first step is to say, what am I asking? What is the real question? What is the framing of that question that makes sense, that's going to let me move forward on answering it? The second step is to fact find. And that means partly getting some data. In the school case, maybe that's some information about the schools or information about how kids perform when they finish the schools or what kinds of kids are are in the school, how much diversity there is in the school. But it's also going to mean getting all the information you need about logistics and the impacts of these decisions on other parts of your family life. This is not a decision that you're going to make alone. It is a decision that influences everything we do. And we want to respect that influence. And so when we make the choice, we want that influence, that interconnectedness between all our decisions to be part of the decision process here. So I think it's worth spending some time thinking carefully about all the decisions that make all the pieces that go into this. So you put that together, the logistics, you know, who would drive the kid to this school and, and also the data, how are these different schools and how would they fit the needs of my kid or the values of our family? And then you're going to get to a moment where you think, okay, I have the information. And as you're fact finding, you're not trying to make the decision. You're fact finding, you're getting the information, you're putting it all together. And you get to the point where you say, this is it. I have the information I need. And then you move to the third F. The third F is final decision. The third F says, look, you can't just let this decision dribble and dribble and get more information every day and be constantly changing your mind and thinking about it all the time. Plan to get the information and then schedule a time to make the decision about this process and move on. So at some point you will have to choose a school. And then after you've made that final decision, part of this process is saying, hey, okay, let's move on. We made the decision. We're not going to revisit the decision tomorrow and the next day and the next day. You've made it and you're going to move on. Except there's a fourth F. uh, And the fourth F is follow-up. For many of these big decisions we make that we're, I think we're often tempted to think that we can never revisit them, that once they're implemented, we can't go back. But that's not right. In fact, we should plan explicitly to revisit almost all of these big decisions at times when we could rethink them. If you're deciding about a school or you move forward on enrolling in one particular school and going to the school, then it is worthwhile thinking about, okay, there's a time at which we should see how it's going. At, at the end of the year, we can revisit this choice. We can think about whether we want to do it again. And almost all of our decisions have that feature. And if we plan to follow up, we are going to be more likely to do it. And we are going to be more likely to approach that follow up with the possibility of changing our mind if it is not working for us. Big idea four, don't micromanage, transfer responsibility. 
So I want you to imagine that you're at your job and normally it's your, one of your roles is to order the sandwiches for the Thursday lunch, but you're really busy this week. And you ask your colleague to order the sandwiches for you. So your colleague does that. But think about what you wouldn't do in that situation. Say you've asked them to order the sandwiches and they're sitting there ordering them. And say you, you were standing over them and saying things like, no, not so much turkey. Oh, people like cookies. Wait, not the peanut butter cookies. Don't get those. Wait, do you didn't get any salad? That behavior is not okay. You would never do that at your job. You transfer the responsibility. And now in this scenario, you're standing over them micromanaging their responsibility. You wouldn't do that at your job. But I think we often do that at home. So I want you to think about a parallel situation where normally one parent, let's say that's you, is responsible for getting the kid ready for camp. And on some particular day, the other parent's taken over that job. I think it's not so far to imagine that if the main parent comes and sees what's happening, they may think there's a moment where they say, oh no, oh no, no, you're not doing it right. That's not the sunscreen we use. Oh, you packed the wrong kind of snack. Don't wear those shoes. They should have a different shirt on. Did you remember this? Did you remember that? I think we're much more likely to do that at home than we are at work, but it has the same downsides that it has at work. It's disrespectful and it's also not necessarily productive because presumably the reason that the other person is doing this at this point is because you had something else to do. The reason I think we tend towards this kind of micromanaging in our households is that in our households, I think we're reluctant to do what I like to call total responsibility transfer where we actually transfer the entire responsibility for an activity onto someone else. But if we were more willing to adopt that kind of process at home, to basically say, here are the things that are important. People have to wear sunscreen every day. Snacks should be something healthy, whatever the rules are in the household. If we've managed to get on the same page about those, one of the real values of that is that anyone can implement them and we do not need to micromanage. Big idea five. Sleep is important. So my book, The Family Firm, actually is a lot about data. uh, And in these big ideas, I haven't really talked about data. But there's one really important piece, which is that kids need sleep. If you are a parent, you'll know this because of perhaps one time or a few times when your kid did not sleep well, and then they acted like a jerk. But if you would really like data support for this, we actually have randomized trials that show that even relatively limited manipulations in sleep for school-age kids can influence their mood and their cognitive health and their performance on tests. So when we ask parents uh, in a randomized trial to put their kids to bed just one hour later for four days, it actually influences how they perform on memory tasks, how they perform on cognitive tasks, and how their parents report their behavior at the end of a week. So that's a pretty small manipulation. It's an hour, it's just a few days, but it really does seem to matter. With older people, adults, college students, we can do much bigger manipulations. And we can see things like if you have college students stay up all night and then give them a test, they do quite a lot worse, although they think that they do better. So we know that sleep is important, but the necessary amount of sleep ranges a lot for different kids. So it's something like nine to 11 hours for a typical kid per night, but some kids really need 12 and some kids can get by on eight. So part of what I talk about in the book is how would you know if your kid was getting enough sleep? And it turns out you can know this in part by observing them and asking effectively, 
Does your kid seem sleepy during the day? If they seem sleepy during the day, they are not getting enough sleep at night. Another test is if you let them sleep on the weekends, if you let them sleep in, and they sleep two or three more hours than they would otherwise, then they're also not getting enough sleep. So that's a way to think a little bit, to experiment with whether your kids are sleeping enough. And it's also, I think, in some ways very important to know because it gets back to some of what I talked about in Big Idea 2, which was thinking about what's the big picture of your life. If you know that sleep is important, it's going to influence a lot of the other choices that you make because you need to, may need to put your kid to bed earlier than you might have thought. And that may influence the other things you want to do or the other things that are you're able to do. So in this era of our life, the big point, the big, 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 our overarching point of the book is that you need decision-making and you need data and you need a way to bring them together. Thanks for listening. And I hope that you enjoy the book. That was Emily Osser with five big ideas from The Family Firm. I hope you enjoyed those three book bites. You can find those and many more, a new book bite every single day on our next Big Idea app. If you want to go deeper, you can buy any of those books with a couple clicks directly from our app. You will also find virtual book launch events that we host with leading authors, video and audio e-courses on the best books of the year, and much, much more. Just search for the next big idea in your app store. If you like this show, please tell your babysitter, the daycare staff, and your kids' friends' parents. And if you have a chance, leave us a review and a five-star rating if you think we've earned it. How did you like this format? We did it differently this time. Do you have any feedback for us? I would love to hear it. You can shoot me an email at Rufus, R-U-F-U-S, at nextbigideaclub.com. Special thanks to Melinda, Greg, Ryan, and Emily. This episode was written and produced by Caleb Bissinger. Our executive producer is Michael Kovnat. Theme music by Costa Galanopoulos. Sound design by Mike Toda. I'm your host, Rufus Griscom. Thanks for being my neighbor.